Dear Lord, Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this night. We give you thanks for this chance to gather together around this wonderful book that is full of scriptural wisdom. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put aside all the things that have distracted us during this day and that you would open our hearts as we look at this book and look at your word and that you would speak through this time to help draw us more and more into the things of your kingdom. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, all right, so, uh, as you may know, we are this year uh, in a slightly unusual calendar year where Easter is really early, and part of what that means is Ash Wednesday is really early, and that is a short way of saying that there is no class next Wednesday uh, because it is Ash Wednesday. But I would commend to you um, to come to church. Uh, the six o'clock service uh, will be a wonderful way of beginning the season of Lent. And we're going to talk a little bit about Lent because it relates to some of the things that are in our uh, chapter tonight. And just so you know, if you've been looking at the book and thinking, oh, we're getting close to the end, um, if you're excited about that, I'm sorry to disappoint you, uh, but we're going to slow way down um, in the last couple of chapters because the book is going to take a major turn uh, in the next couple of chapters, and when that happens, our pace is going to slow. Uh, we will finish it, never fear, uh, but it, it's not going to be a chapter a week. So uh, we have a wonderful musical selection that I will be absolutely shocked if anyone knows what this is, but it is beautiful, and I will commend it to you when it comes in the email uh, as something that you will want to listen to. But I'm going to play it, and on the off chance that you know what it is or you think you might know the composer, just let me know. All right, so that is actually a piece by a composer called William Byrd. And William Byrd was one of the great English composers of church music uh, back in the 16th and early 17th century. He came from a very musical family. He and his three brothers were all choristers at St. Paul's Cathedral uh, in the year 1600. And William grew up to be a very talented composer and eventually was the head of all the music at the Chapel Royal. And so um, this particular piece is called Amendemus in Melius. And it is a setting uh, of a really ancient prayer for the first week of Lent. And I want to just read you the, the English version of this prayer uh, because it is just beautiful. It says, let us amend what we have transgressed through ignorance 
Lest should the day of death suddenly overtake us, we seek time for repentance and cannot find it. Hearken, O Lord, and have mercy, for we have sinned against thee. Help us, O God of our salvation, and for the glory of thy name, deliver us. And it's remarkable to think that this was composed and has been being sung for over 400 years now. So there's a lot of beautiful depth to those words. So when the email comes out, I would commend to you to listen to that link. So let's say our verse together. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, just a couple of words about how to approach this class, especially if you're new, either in person or on the podcast. Um, You can approach this in many different ways. You can be on the beach where you don't read the book, you don't buy the book, you don't pay attention, you just sort of appear from time to time. If that is all you want to do, that is absolutely great. So welcome. Or you can snorkel, go deep on the parts that you find interesting and ignore the rest. Or you can scuba dive. If you got the email this week, there was that wonderful um, 30-page article on George Herbert uh, that if you're a scuba diver, you will have great fun with. If you're on the beach, uh, you might want to just delete that off your computer. So, uh, but I do want to say, particularly for people in uh, the podcast world out there, if you're not on our email list, please Google St. Philip's Church, Charleston, United States, and you can find me on the website and send me an email, and we'll get you added to that list so you get all the class resources. So, again, part of the reason that we are studying this book is that we've got Lewis operating on three very different levels. And part of what's going on is this is a capstone story drawing all of the threads of all of the Narnia books together. But it also is a profoundly theological book that is looking at the whole idea of original sin, the sin of Eden, and the means of grace and the glory of heaven. It also is a parable about following Jesus and particularly dealing with the concepts of word and truth uh, that is really applicable in 21st century America. So we talked about uh, the past couple of chapters have not really been great news for Tyrion and the true Narnians and the children. There've been a lot of things going wrong. And part of what has happened with that is that they're gathered around this stable Uh, where the ape has been holding court and reached to Tarkon, the Calamine officer is up there, and Ginger the cat. And last week we saw them starting to force the Narnians into the stable door where something horrible was in there. We weren't quite sure what. And finally, Ginger the cat says that he will go in there. Ginger, the very arrogant uh, cat who's very full of himself. And Ginger goes in there and... Almost immediately after this flash, Ginger comes flying back out with all of his hair all awry 
and making all sorts of noises. And then when they try to talk to him to say what happened in there, they learn that he has lost the ability to speak, that he is no longer a talking beast of Narnia, but he is a dumb animal. And they are terrified. So we looked at the fact that the ape and Rishtatarkhan uh, and Ginger the cat are all saying Aslan and Tash are the same, and you can call them Tashlan, but we'll see some more this week about the true nature of both of them. We saw there's a lot of deception and manipulation, the nature of belief and faith, courage, the danger of misplaced faith, evil and coercion, and then proclaiming the truth with courage and action. Which gets us to this week's chapter, chapter 11, the pace quickens. And I want to just note as an aside, part of what is remarkable about this book is these chapters are about seven or eight pages long. The amount of stuff that Lewis can cram into a seven or eight page chapter is absolutely breathtaking. Lewis and Tolkien were really good friends. It would have taken Tolkien 70 pages for Lewis's seven. So it really is amazing. So in this chapter, Reach to Tarkon, well, you might remember at the end of the last chapter, there, as the ape is starting to force these creatures in there, Tyrion can't stand it any longer, and he calls on the children and the others with him to spring out with swords drawn and to protect these animals from having to go into this stable door. So they've leaped out with swords drawn and the chapter ended. So this chapter picks up with Reach to Tarkon, the Calermine, calling for the warriors of the Tisrock, who's the head Calermine, and the Narnians who fear Tashlan to come and battle against Tyrion. And so in all of the chaos and the fighting, Tyrion and Pagan the Dwarf capture the ape and they force him into the stable. And as they force him into the stable, there is this frightening explosion and a big flash of greenish blue light and an earthquake and all sorts of things. And everyone is terrified and all the beasts fall on the ground and howl saying Tashlan Tashlan, hide us from him. And even Reach to Tarkon, who's been singing the praises of Tashlan, is terrified. And the talking dogs, the small animals, the bear and the boar, they all come running to Tyrion. And Tyrion sends these small animals to go and rescue the talking horses. And you might remember from several chapters ago, that all the talking horses had been sold into slavery. And so these animals go and rescue them. Meanwhile, the dwarfs, remember we've had a lot of trouble with the dwarfs in the story. Tyrion thought that they would come to his aid, and they didn't. They just keep saying the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. But now they start jeering at the Calermines and saying they're stupid, and they don't know what they're doing, but they refuse to join Tyrion, and they keep saying humbug, and the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. So Tyrion and the children get very excited because they hear these hooves coming, 
and they see off in the distance this great herd of talking horses coming back, and then to their horror, they see the dwarfs stand up and draw their bows and arrows and shoot all of the talking horses to death. So not one of them reaches Tyrion. And it's senseless and evil and cruel, and it is very disheartening to Tyrion and all of his company. Meanwhile, the Calamines start beating their war drums for aid, and Tyrion, more than the rest of them, realizes that that's the beginning of the end, because the reason they're beating the war drum is there's someone else out there that can hear it that will bring reinforcements. So Tyrion and the Nernians try to strategize, figure out what they can do, and they fight bravely with some good success until they realize that the drum has summoned a whole nother Calarmine army. And as soon as they put someone to the sword, there are three more to replace them. So it's not looking great on the battlefront for the Narnians. So there are a number of themes in this chapter. And I should say, lest you get depressed, don't worry, it's going to get better. So some themes. When you sow evil, you will often reap evil. When confronted with real evil, terror and hiding replace the facade of bravado. The danger of calling on gods you don't believe in. Remember all of these leaders, the ape, Rishta, Ginger, they've all been talking about Tash and Tashland, but they didn't believe it. You might remember that conversation we talked about several weeks ago where Rishta and Ginger say, well, clearly there's no such thing as Tash, but they're trying to use his name for their own ends, but they're going to get a surprise. Also, on a happier note, the joy of fellowship and of God's created order. Uh, fear can corrupt sound judgment. Jeering and making fun of others is utterly destructive. And naked self-interest allows for treachery and evil to prosper. And when gifts in the body are used in concert, amazing things can happen. So what we see here is even though there are a lot of really bad things happening, there are some character qualities that are shining through even in the midst of this terrible time that we can learn from. So first, when you sow evil, you will often reap evil, which is certainly a scriptural principle. So the ape, remember the story started off with the ape way back in chapter one, the ape manipulating Puzzle, getting him to wear the lion skin, and then making Puzzle go on these long journeys to bring him back nuts and other delicacies. The ape all through this has been manipulating others for his own selfish ends. But what goes around comes around. So the ape had not realized his danger as quickly as the Tarkon. For a second or so, he remained squatting beside the fire, staring at the newcomers. Then Tyrion rushed upon the wretched creature, picking it up by the scruff of the neck, and dashed back to the stable, shouting, Open the door! 
Pagan opened it. Go and drink your own medicine, chef, said Tyrion, and hurled the ape through into the darkness. But as the dwarf banged the door shut again, a blinding greenish-blue light shone out from the inside of the stable. The earth shook, and there was a strange noise, a clucking and screaming, as if it was the hoarse voice of some monstrous bird. Doesn't sound very pleasant. So some scripture. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. From Galatians, and then this from Proverbs. Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. And then that famous verse from Hosea. For they sow the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. And then from Job, as I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Now, part of the reason this is so important, and I'm going to just give a little commercial here about why, if you have children in your life somewhere, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, whatever it might be, why these books are so good. Because in our culture today, there are very few children's stories where when you sow evil, you reap evil. Lots of stories today, there are no consequences for bad actions. Sometimes bad actions are even rewarded. And one of the things that Lewis does such a beautiful job of is he shows the consequences. This ape has been doing evil, but he has to pay for it. And those sorts of messages, children get that. And so having these kinds of truths brought into their minds through these stories is really important. So, when confronted with real evil, terror and hiding replace the facade of bravado. And many of you will remember uh, the events of September 11th and remember how all of the posturing and everything else that goes in the political and corporate world, as soon as we had the real evil of these terrorist attacks, all of that posturing went right out the window. And it is hard to imagine this now, but all of the Republicans and Democrats came out of the Capitol and stood on the steps and sang God Bless America together. And the reason that that could happen is because they had seen real evil and its undeniable consequences. And one of the things to remember about that is as much as we bemoan and we don't want to invite real evil to happen, happen, sometimes good things come from that because it shakes people and makes them realize their faulty foundation. But what you see in this story is that when real evil happens, Bravado goes out the window and terror 
and hiding replace it. So this explosion has happened with a shift going into the stable and all the beasts moan, they fall on the ground, they howl and they call out, Tashlan, hide us from him. And many fell down and many hid their faces and their wings or paws. No one except Farsight the eagle, who has the best eyes of all living things, noticed the face of Rishta Tarkhan at that moment. And from what Farsight saw, he knew at once that Rishta was just as surprised and nearly as frightened as everyone else. That they have been messing around with evil and they've gotten more than they bargained for. Now there's an amazing passage in Hebrews 12 that I want us to read. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come not to that, but you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And I could preach a whole sermon on that, which I'm not gonna do, but the point of it is that what God did in Jesus was to take us away from that terror and fear of the righteous, holy God that would have to look that way upon our sinfulness. And because Jesus interposed himself and his blood, that has opened to us the way of life. So then from the book of Revelation, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full seal, sorry, the, the full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And part of what we are going to see in the remaining chapters of this book is there are going to be increasing references to the book of Revelation and we're gonna unpack some of that as we go along. But the idea here and this is something that we've seen in all of the other books of Lewis that we've done, is that choices have consequences. And 
again, that's a lesson that is largely not out there in our culture right now, that you can choose whatever you want to and it's just all good. But the fact of the matter is that is not true. And what we're going to see is that choices matter. So then the danger of calling on gods you don't believe in. But as the dwarf banged the door shut, a blinding greenish-blue light shone out from the inside of the stable. The earth shook, and there was a strange noise, a clucking and screaming, as if it was the hoarse voice of some monstrous bird. The beast moaned and howled and called out, Tashlan, hide us from him. And many fell down, and many hid their faces in their wings or paws. From what Farsight saw there, he knew at once that Rishda was just as surprised and nearly as frightened as everyone else. There goes one, thought Farsight, who had called on gods he does not believe in. How will it be with him if they have really come? And one of the things that is so important about this in our cultural moment right now is that Many, many people in our culture do not believe in the existence of evil. They do not believe that there's such a thing as evil, that it's just everything is a matter of preference, and if it works for you, that is all great. But, of course, the problem with that view, especially if you're a Christian, is we understand that there is a spiritual reality and that there is God and Jesus and his holy angels, but there also is Satan and demons and all of that. And one of the things that is going on in our culture right now that is really frightening is the rise of the occult. Now, most people think about the occult as being something like back in Sherlock Holmes' day that you know there were these tarot card parlors and seances at the end of the 19th century. But I will tell you that uh, particularly among people in their 20s on college campuses, there is a huge interest in this. And when we were, Jane and I both went to Emory, and, and my mother as well went to Emory in Atlanta. And when we were there last fall for a wedding, we went to the Emory bookstore. And when you walk into the bookstore, uh, there's a big table about the size of two, maybe three of these together. Right when you come in, and the entire table was tarot cards and all covered with, um, you know, stranger things, tarot cards or um, whatever video game you like, tarot cards. And students were buying them while we were in there. And so, you know, we think, oh, people don't do that anymore. But I will tell you, the occult is alive and well, unfortunately. And when you start messing with the powers of darkness, there are n not good things are going to come from that. And there's, there's much that scripture has to say about that. So this is Jesus himself speaking in John chapter eight, speaking to people who have called on the powers of darkness. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, that is a long way from gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But he is speaking 
truth there because we need to understand that there is an enemy and he is the father of lies. And this is where this whole concept of word and truth comes in. When lies are just being broadcast as if they are the truth, that is something that rejoices not the Lord's heart, but rejoices the powers of darkness. And we have to be very careful about that. And then this passage from the Old Testament. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines, the Sidonians also, and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Now that is a very chilling verse, but it is echoed uh, if you go and read Romans 1. God speaks in that passage um, that Paul is writing about the fact that people kept choosing against the truth and choosing the lie. And then there are these chilling words in that chapter where it says, so God gave them over. God gave them over. He let them reap what they had sown. And uh, that is something that we want to pray to be protected from, that we want to be the ones who cry out to the Lord and not seek after other gods. And then this passage from Jesus speaking in Matthew. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds not. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. Part of what is so important here is to understand that there is a spiritual reality where there are forces of darkness. It is important to remember that Jesus, like the children's song, Jesus is stronger than the boogeyman, uh, but that Jesus has defeated the powers of sin and darkness and Satan. They were defeated on the cross, but in this period where we're in the now but not yet, where the world has not been fully redeemed, we've not yet come to the new heavens and the new earth, Satan and his minions are out there, uh, scripture says, prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. And it's easy to be naive, because we don't like to think about stuff like this, because it's creepy and awful. But we have to remember that. We have to remember, uh, if you were back in the screw tape class, that verse that we said over and over from Ephesians about putting on the full armor of God. Because we are not out walking around in neutral territory. We are in a battle zone where there are enemies that are seeking to take us out. 
Now, what that does not mean is that we need to think Satan's behind every bush and that we need to live in fear uh, because we don't. We should be living in the joyous pursuit of following Jesus, but at the same time realizing that there is an enemy that we need to be aware of. So on a happier note, in the midst of all the bad things going on in this chapter, something good finally happens. And that is we see the joy of fellowship and of God's created order. The third thing, the first two things were not so great. The third thing, which also happened at the same moment, was the only really beautiful thing that night. Every single talking dog in the whole meeting, there were 15 of them, came bounding and barking joyously to the king's side. They were mostly great big dogs with thick shoulders and heavy jaws. Their coming was like the breaking of a great wave on the sea beach. It nearly knocked you down. For though they were talking dogs, they were just as doggy as they could be. And they all stood up and put their front paws on the shoulders of the humans and licked their faces, all saying at once, welcome, welcome, we'll help, we'll help, 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 show us how to help, show us how, 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 how. It was so lovely that it made you want to cry. And part of what Lewis is showing here is that God's good creation ministers to us in times of trouble. It's not an accident that in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus is saying over and over again that command, this is the most disobeyed in all of scripture, do not be anxious, do not worry, over and over and over again, that each time he says that, he follows it by consider. And the, what he tells you to consider is always nature. Consider the lilies of the field, how they neither spin nor sow, but Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Or consider the birds of the air. There, there is beauty in God's created order that helps us when we are in times of stress. And the other thing that Lewis is showing here is that, and this pervades Lewis and Tolkien's work, that you have these different kinds of creatures and you have different races and you have different ages, you have different genders, and they're all one when they follow Aslan. And they're all encouraging one another and there's no prejudice or looking down on anyone, but there's this joy of being together because they're all following Aslan. So some scripture about this. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And then from Philippians, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. And then this beautiful passage from Job. But ask the animals and they will teach you or the birds in the sky, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth and it will teach you, or let the fish in the sea inform you, which of all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this. And then the Psalms are full of uh, reminders to us to look at the way that the creation praises the Lord. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. 
You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and women, old men and children. And this is that whole refrain that you see over and over in the Psalms, let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. And part of what Lewis is trying to show us here is the beauty in all the different aspects of God's creation and the fact that these dogs and their dogginess are a source of joy and encouragement and that God has um, given us all of these things that are good things that we are to be stewards of. Fear can corrupt sound judgment. Now there are, well, we'll get to that in a minute. So what the passage in the book says is several little animals, mice and moles and a squirrel or two, came pattering up, squealing with joy and saying, see, see, we're here. This is after Tyrannus said, all true Narnians to me, all true Narnians to me. And these little beasts come, see, see, we're here. And when after that, the bear and the boar came too, Eustace began to feel that perhaps after all, everything might be going to come right. But Tyrion gazed round and saw how very few of the animals had moved. To me, to me, he called, have you all turned cowards since I was your king? We dare not, whimpered dozens of voices. Tashlan would be angry. Shield us from Tashlan. And they're terrified. They're terrified. And because of their fear, it keeps them from going to the only place where they could actually be saved. They're so afraid that they are immobilized and that their judgment about what's right and true that they know because these animals have been taught the truth about Aslan from when they were small, they have been overcome by listening to their fears. And there's so much in scripture about fear and how it can tear up your spiritual life. Listen to this from 1 John. There is no fear in love, but perfect love cast out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love and then this great verse from psalm 46 god is our refuge and strength an ever-present help in trouble therefore we will not fear that the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. And then Jesus himself saying, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And then look what fear did in the parable that Jesus tells about the talents. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, 
You knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the 10 talents. For to everyone who has will more be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And it's interesting that scripture all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid if you're seeking after God because I am with you. And one of the most beautiful things when we start seeing the prophecies about Jesus coming is that so many of them say, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, that we are not alone, that we are not to be alone, thinking we're alone and afraid, but we're to understand that God is with us and by our side. Then, well, before we get to this, one of the things that's really interesting in Lewis's work, particularly given that this is written uh, in the 1940s and 50s, is People were not talking about bullying back then. And that's a very current topic, but Lewis was very aware of it. And you see his describing scenes of bullying. The silver chair starts off um, with a schoolyard bullying incident where the girl, um, this middle school girl who's bullied, is the protagonist of the whole story. And that's the same girl that has now landed here, Jill Pohl. Uh, and you see here the dwarfs bullying everybody. So we see that jeering and making fun of others is utterly destructive, and naked self-interest allows for treachery and evil to prosper. When people are only concerned about themselves and they have no empathy for anyone else, that is when a culture is really in a bad place. So as the defeated Calamines went back to their commander, the dwarfs began jeering at them. Had enough, they yelled. Don't you like it? Why doesn't your great Tarkhan go and fight himself instead of sending you to be killed? Dwarfs, cried Tyrion, come here and use your swords, not your tongues. There's still time. Dwarfs of Narnia, you can fight well, I know. Come back to your allegiance. Yeah sneered the dwarfs. Not likely. You're just as big humbugs as the other lot. We don't want any kings. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Boo. But the dwarfs jeered back at Eustace. That was a surprise for you, little boy, eh? Thought we were on your side, did you? No fear. We don't want any talking horses. We don't want you to win any more than the other gang. You can't take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Now, we're not used to hearing the refrain, the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Um, if you look through the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal or USA Today or NBC News, you're not going to hear anyone saying the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. But what I would suggest to you is that our culture is saying loud and clear exactly the same thing. Uh, those of you that were at Mere Anglicanism heard Carl Truman 
talk about uh, the book that he wrote that was Christianity Today's book of the year, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the uh, thesis of that book is that the cry of the culture is I am my own God. I am for myself. I don't listen to anyone else. I am authentic to myself. I don't worry about anyone else. I do me, you do you, and everything is going to be fine. That's exactly the same thing as the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. It is naked self-interest. It is saying nothing matters except me and what I want. And that is a scary place to be. So listen to these scriptures. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Now this is another reason, just as an aside, that these books are great for children because most of the speech in these books is gracious. Most of the speech is beautiful and encouraging. And I'm sorry to say that a lot of what is in children's books now is anything but that. Um, there's a lot of angry, uh, crude talk in children's books. And children need things to aspire to. And these stories of Narnia help with that. Then listen to this from 1 Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. Do not rejoice when your enemy falls and let not your heart be glad when he stumbles. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and could not obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. And my friends, we live in a culture that is wise in its own eyes. And we would do well to turn back to the truth that is in Scripture. We would also do well to go back and listen to this verse uh, from Proverbs about not rejoicing when your enemy falls, let not your heart be glad when he stumbles, and the one right before from 1 Peter, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. This is saying exactly the same thing that Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, which is perhaps the most radical thing in the Christian faith, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And if you've read this chapter, you'll remember there's a little scene where when the dwarfs are jeering, Eustace decides to start trying to give it back to them. And Tyrion says, stop that. A true warrior doesn't behave that way. And we could say the same thing. A true Christian 
doesn't take up the language and weapons of the culture and just turn it right back around where we look just the same as they do. So we need to be listening to a higher call. And then when gifts in the body are used in concert, amazing things can happen. And there's a great section in the story where it's talking about how Tyrion is strategizing with just this tiny little group of people, how he's going to deal with fighting this whole army. And it's brilliant what he does. And he has to really motivate the people because they're scared. So Jill has to go out far away from everyone else and take up a position with her bow and arrow. Feeling terribly alone, Jill ran out about 20 feet, put her right leg back and her left leg forward and set an arrow to her string. She knew that speed was what mattered. She saw something big and black darting into the faces of the Calamines. That was farsight. First one man, then another, dropped his sword and put up both his hands to defend his eyes. Then one of her own arrows hit a man and another hit a Narnian wolf. With a flash of swords and of the boar's tusks and jewel's horn and with deep baying from the dogs, Tyrion and his party were rushing on their enemies like men in a hundred yards race. Jill was astonished to see how unprepared the Calamines seemed to be. She did not realize this was the result of her work and the eagles. Very few troops can keep looking on steadily to the front if they're getting arrows in their faces from one side and being pecked by an eagle on the other. Oh, well done, well done, shouted Jill. The king's party were cutting their way right into the enemy. The unicorn was tossing men as you'd toss hay on a fork. Even Eustace seemed to Jill, who after all didn't know very much about swordsmanship, to be fighting brilliantly. The dogs were at the Calamine's throats. It was going to work. It was victory at last. Until the rest of the Calamine army showed up. But what you see in this is each person using their gifts for the benefit of others. All doing different things, but doing them together for the same purpose, in the same quest. And it's so much, if you read 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, um, it's exactly what Paul is talking about with the body of Christ. So this verse from 1 Peter. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does, it, does its work. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And this is such an important concept. When you live in an age where selfishness and self-interest are praised all the time, and you're told that that's virtuous to be just about you and not think about anyone else, you see the contrast that what we're supposed to do is to use the gifts that we've been given not to serve ourselves, but to serve others, and that that builds up the body and creates joy and creates fellowship. And it enables the sum of the parts to be much more than the individual parts themselves. So there's a lot of stuff 
in this chapter, and there's a lot to think about. And part of what you see in the midst of this is that Tyrion, the leader, the young king, remember Tyrion's in his 20s, so he's a very young king. Tyrion is in the midst of all of this chaos of noise and earthquakes and flashes of light and treachery and odds against him, and yet he is able to stay calm. He's able to stay grounded. And part of the reason for that is he knows Aslan and he knows the truth of what Aslan stands for. And as we get ready to move into Lent, it is a great time to think about the fact that in the chaos of the world that we live in and the noise and the confusion and the strife, that if we lean into knowing who Jesus is and lean into knowing Jesus's word, that even in the midst of all of that swirling around us, we can still hear the word and we can still follow it and we can be centered. And as we move through Lent, grow in our devotion to following Jesus. And I want to close tonight with a poem called Ash Wednesday. This is just an excerpt from it. Uh, it's a wonderful poem by T.S. Eliot that he wrote in 1927 when he was converted from being an atheist to becoming um, a Christian and an Anglican Christian at that. And the poem has got lots of different parts and a lot of allusions, but this part I think is just absolutely Brilliant. It goes right to that idea of the word of God and how vital it is for us. If the lost word is lost, if the spent word is spent, if the unheard, unspoken word is unspoken, unheard, still is the unspoken word, the word unheard. The word without a word, the word within the world and for the world, and the light shone in darkness, and against the word, the unstilled world, still world, about the center of the silent word. O oh, my people, what have I done unto thee? Where shall the word be found? Where will the word resound? Not here, there's not enough silence not on the sea or on the islands, not on the mainland, in the desert or the rainland. For those who walk in darkness, both in the daytime and in the nighttime, the right time and the right place are not here. No place of grace for those who avoid the face. No time to rejoice for those who walk among noise and deny the voice. And we don't have time to completely unpack all of that, but part of what Elliot is getting at is that the world, the secular world, has lost the word, that it doesn't understand the word, it doesn't speak the word, it's not seen, it's not heard. But despite the fact that the world ignores it and doesn't know it, that word is still there. It is still there, it is within the world, and it is for the world. And that light shines in the darkness, and this world still goes round and round, and it is all centered 
in that word, that capital W word. He's referencing the prologue of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was the word was with God, and the word was God. And then the oh my people, what have I done to thee? The whole idea of the freedom that God has given us and what people have chosen to do with that freedom. And then where will the word be found? Where will it resound? Not in places where we filled up all the silence. Not in places where we choose to walk in darkness even in the daytime, uh, insulating ourselves from the word. And that no one who is uh, insulating themselves and walking in darkness and trying to avoid the face of God, the face of the word, not rejoicing, walking in noise and denying the truth of God that those people will never find it. So there's a lot to think about in this, but part of the premise of Lent is that we go deep into the word, the written word of God, the spoken word of God, but also into the capital W word of God, deep into our relationship with Jesus. So let's close with a prayer. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that your word is eternal, that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Lord, we thank you that we, your people, are not people of the darkness, but we are people of the light. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live in such a way that we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, that we set our minds on things above, and that we do not descend into the methods and chaos of our culture. Lord, we pray that you would take away our fear, that you would replace that fear with your perfect love, and that you would use us as your ambassadors as we hold out your word of life in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the assaults of the evil one, and that as we move into the season of Lent, that you would use that time to help us grow deeper and our love for you. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Please try to meet someone you haven't met before you go home.